What are your preconceived notions about psychedelics? Well, our guest today wrote the book Reality Switch Technologies, Psychedelics as Tools for the Discovery and Exploration of New Worlds. You're not going to want to miss it. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden. Let's get emboldened. America Emboldened. Greg, I feel emboldened. You don't know the founding fathers. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they sacrificed. We have lost touch with the principles in the Constitution. Nobody's read the Declaration of Independence. You are voting for socialism, and you got what you voted for. Welcome, bold Americans, to another episode of America Emboldened. As always, I'm your host, Greg Bolden. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Greg. Well, Chris, I got to listen to your show, Unleashed, uh, which premiered on Monday. Great first show. Welcome officially to the network outside of being a co-host, being your own host. I know. It's, uh, it's fairly large shoes to fill and a bit of a learning curve for me. So it'll be fun, though. If I can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> true. If your students can do what I'm supposed to do, then I'm pretty sure I can do it, too. That's right. So, uh, Chris, uh, yeah. I've been following the work at Johns Hopkins University uh, for quite a long time. Uh, I was uh, a long time ago. I almost died. Uh, I was in the uh, mall and I had a cardiac event. I collapsed, uh, was taking the ambulance, shot up with nitroglycerin and everything else. It was a horrible experience. And afterwards, I had PTSD. And I was trying to figure out therapeutic ways in order to deal with the anxiety and the PTSD of, oh my God, like, how do I deal with my mortality that I'd never had to face? I was about 28 years old when this happened. And crazy study out of Johns Hopkins. There was a Roland Griffiths and Alan Davis were doing research down there. And he discovered that a certain psychedelic caused them to confront questions about everything. Because, and this was published in the Journal of Psychopharmacology in the May issue of 2020, if anybody wants to look this up. But people that were atheists discovered that they encountered a benevolent entity upon inhaling the chemical substance DMT. Many people were also taught about how it helped cure PTSD, helped them end their anxiety and what it could mean for veterans. Our guest tonight, I'm honored to say that we have a really amazing voice on this entire topic. We have Dr. Andrew Gallimore, who's a computational neurobiologist. He's a pharmacologist, and he is a chemist with a huge interest in DMT. Matter of fact, he wrote a book called Alien Information Theory, and he's also published a master course on psychedelics and the brain. Uh, currently, he is in the Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology in Japan, and he's coming to us tonight. So, Chris, welcome, Dr. Andrew, to the stage. Good. Hi, Andrew. Hello there, Chris and Greg. Uh, this is going to be a, a wild episode. It's not normally my complete wheelhouse. I talk a lot about politics, but I do get into kind of the energy we bring into the world. Um, my show on Monday, I'm talking to a shaman who is uh, helping people get ready for psychedelic journeys in order to improve their healing in their own life. And so I wanted to get the the medical perspective, the 
uh, neurology from a neurobiologist perspective on what's going on. So first, could you introduce yourself and how you got interested in this work to our audience? Yeah, well, I mean, as you said, I'm a uh, I'm a chemical pharmacologist. I've been interested in drugs for decades, and particularly uh, interested in psychoactive drugs, so drugs that in neural machinery to cause alterations in uh, the way the brain works and the way that uh, our consciousness is structured, uh, basically. Um, but I think over the last couple of decades, my interest is, is focused on psychedelic drugs, because in my opinion, those are the drugs that um, are the most mysterious in many aspects, in that they cause the most dramatic um, changes in the structure and the dynamics of your conscious world. Uh, and the sitting at the pinnacle, if you like, uh, of all of those is this molecule, which you mentioned, dimethyltryptamine, DMT, um, which is in many ways still inexplicable, um, both how it works, how it's able to cause these changes in, in such dramatic changes in consciousness, such that your entire normal waking world is obliterated and replaced with this bizarre hyper-technological alien reality filled with non-human intelligent entities. Um, that's very, very difficult to explain. So that's really kind of kind of where I've been coming from for the last 20 odd years is is thinking, writing about and researching and talking about um, this incredible um, plant alkaloid um, that we also all carry around in our brains, uh, how it works, how it, how it achieves its effect and what it all means. You know, what does it say about our relationship to a broader reality? Uh, does it mean that we are indeed interfacing with some kind of other intelligence? And if so, how does that work? How is that possible? So, big questions. So explain to the audience, how does one uh, go into the psychedelic experience with DMT? What's the pharmacology uh, perspective and how safe is it for these people to be in these studies at Johns Hopkins and elsewhere in order to be taking this? Can you share that experience a little bit? Well, I mean, in terms of safety, it's, it's extremely safe. I mean, it's far safer than many of the commonly used pharmaceuticals. I mean, there's no toxicity there's no evidence whatsoever and it certainly would have appeared by now of any kind of neurotoxicity in fact quite the opposite there is good evidence that it stimulates neurogenesis it stimulates the formation of new connections and perhaps even uh, new neurons in the brain um, so um, safety it's um, it's not a, not a concern uh, Terence McKenna used to say the only real danger uh, is the risk of death by astonishment um, such is the truly um, astonishing and bizarre realities uh, that you you are hurtled into when you take DMT. Um, so, so a typical DMT trip. So normally it would be so at Johns Hopkins and in other research institutions they would use intravenous injections. So they inject it. They dissolve a salt of the DMT in, in, in a solution, and that goes directly into your, your veins, uh, which is the most efficient way of getting in, into you. But most people, of course, who are using DMT outside of research projects are vaporizing it. So normally they're extracting DMT from one of the many available um, rich plant sources of the alkaloid, uh, and then they're vaporizing it, you know, Traditionally, it would be a small glass pipe. These days, people are dissolving it in e-liquids and using like 
modified electronic cigarettes, basically, um, and vaping it like that, a very efficient okay. and clean way of doing it without burning it. Uh, so normally, yeah, you would inhale one or two lungfuls of this vapor, hold it in, lie down, close your eyes, and, um, you know, as if you're on a roller coaster, really, kind of hold tight. Um, it's like the Metallica song, off the never never <laughs> <end>. <laughs> yeah. um, And initially what will happen is normally you will find yourself being hurtled through this rapidly changing procession of highly complex, inordinately complex um, imagery, normal, extremely complex geometric imagery, hmm. um, like being kind of fired out of a, a cannon. I think Timothy Leary said it's like being fired out of a cannon with neo-Byzantine barreling. Um, so you can imagine the kind of the, the, the sense of acceleration through um, from the, this kind of normal waking reality into some other space. And then assuming that the dosage is sufficient, uh, you reach what's often called the breakthrough phase. So this is where you, there's okay. this transition, this feeling of breaking through some kind of veil um, some kind of threshold. There's often a sound, a pop, or a crinkling, crackling sound. Really? There's an auditory effect that goes with it. And then, boom, you're in this other place. Um, so, you know, 30 seconds earlier, you were in the normal waking world of very stable, predictable, familiar world of everyday life. And now, uh, suddenly, you are in a world that bears no relationship whatsoever to the world that you've just left behind. Um, it is normally... Uh, complex um extremely strange bizarre often described as hyper techn technological um as if it was you know constructed by the hand of a, an extremely advanced intelligent civilization way beyond anything um uh, that humans have ever constructed and probably way beyond anything that exists in this universe i mean we're talking about um millions billions trillions of years ahead it's sort of almost incomprehensibly advanced this place uh, and there's a very real sense of that it's it's unmistakable there's no there's no like oh this looks a bit like it could be an alien civilization it's like no <laughs> you're here and this is there's no doubt about it in your mind whilst you're there that this is not just your brain kind of scrambled or making things up but you are in the, right. and, and normally this is when beings will come you will you will encounter these intelligences that occupy this space and they come in various different types um um yeah so that's basically the all right DM so so back, back when i was studying uh pastoral care and counseling we're going through uh near-death experiences and dr jim halk was my professor and he was looking for commonality in near-death experiences, looking for people's stories to all be identical so he could figure out what's happening at the moment of death. I'm going to ask you what it sounds like is when people take DMT, are they all experiencing the exact same world or are there differentials within their stories? What's the data say? Well, so it's a mixture of the two. So there are certainly commonalities. Uh, in that people do describe going to the same kinds of places with the same kind of structure, uh, commonly meeting the same types of entities. Uh, I mean, the analogy that I always like to use is if you drop somebody onto a random position on Earth, um, if they landed um, in the Siberian tundra, I think, uh, versus somebody who landed um, in the street 
uh, during rush hour in Hanoi in Vietnam, um, they describe very different worlds. And you might say they've gone to a different place and they did go to a different place. But in a sense, they also went to the same place. They all landed on Earth somewhere. Um, so so even our very small planet is extremely diverse um, in terms of the environment. So being hurtled into this domain, which is seemingly you know, inc incomprehensibly more vast and more complex and more diverse it, it, it's you you can't expect everyone kind of to burst into the same kind of exact same surroundings and environment uh, and, and you don't see that uh, but what you do see is 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 there's lots of commonalities the types of entities that people encounter the, the general ambience of the place um, um is is eerily um similar between people you know entirely independent people um and this goes back to really the earliest research back in the 1950s and okay. uh, when you know the, the first studies were of when when the psychoact psychedelic problem discovered by a hungarian physician called Stephen zara in those first experiences these um his, his first cohort of volunteers um, reported going to another world and seeing um, these beings, these godlike beings or uh, elf-like beings, dwarf-like beings, which are kind of common in the space. Um, so it's it's not just a modern phenomenon. Um, uh, this It seems to be kind of a, uh, an implicit or a, a, a kind of a, a fundamental feature of the space is that you go to these extremely advanced world filled with these very powerful and intelligent beings. I'm curious, what you've studied this extensively, and I know you're well published in this realm too. Like people can find all of your studies and papers. You have notable research papers are out there. People look to you and your colleagues' work. Uh, at what point in time was DMT? You just mentioned this was researched in the 1950s or so. Does this go back to World War II? What, what time period were people starting to put this in journals and talk about in, in the medical community or start to kind of say, hey, what's happening? Well, um, as I said, I mean, people have been using DMT traditionally, not unknowingly to an extent. Uh, in traditional plant okay. preparations going back hundreds if not thousands of years so you know most people have heard of ayahuasca for example i mean the, act, the sure. active component there is dmt of course the indigenous peoples don't know it's dmt uh but that's the the active component there are there are several other important um um kind of technologies really uh, these indigenous jungle technologies uh, that also contain dmt so dmt has been used certainly for hundreds or thousands of years but but stephen czar in 1956 uh, was the very first person so that's the first time anyone was injected with or in, in uh, consumed in any form pure uh, dmt so that's really when it all started um but in those days they weren't particularly interested in the the phenomenology so you know when people started having hallucinations as they called them um that they just categorized them as hallucinations they didn't kind of dig down uh, into actually what what are they seeing and how does it compare with what other people are seeing that's the sort of thing that's happening uh, and has been happening really since Rick Strasman did his pioneering study in the 1990s with 60 human volunteers who were all injected with DMT at various doses. Uh, that's when people started to kind of notice that, yes, there was something 
quite remarkable about what this molecule was doing to the human brain. Um, and, and so now, over the last three decades or so, um, there have been many more studies, more formal quantitative and qualitative analyses of actually the structure and the content of the space and comparing the experiences of, of people who go uh, to these strange worlds. And so about the strange world. So I think Chris Michaels is going to come about this a little bit differently than I am. And that's why we're complimenting each other well in the interview. So I've been wondering about recalibrating my show a bit, because as I cover the political world and I talk about things that are going on, I try to figure out why are we so divided? And I eventually have gotten to this place where I believe that there is this energy that connects us all. And there are people that manipulate it, people that um, understand how to manipulate that energy, people that are a little bit more in tune, understand where our place is and having a conversation where I see, you know, what you've published before, uh, talking about, uh, interdimensional or extra dimensional, I guess I should say, uh, intelligence. I'm curious. A lot of people think that when I have these type of conversations, they're going, Oh, Greg, you've completely lost it. Why are you going here? And I'm going, I think there's more than meets the eye. Are you talking about when you talk about extra dimensional intelligence and search for maybe the, uh, whether or not there's some type of alien life form or whatever that we're communicating with, are we talking about different planes of consciousness in DMT? Um, are we talking about the possibility of finding a divine? Uh, what do you think's happening? Um, let's open question. And I, 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 I'm unlike some people who claim to have have it all worked out. Uh, I, I never make such claims. Um, is it some other dimension? What would that mean? I, I avoid the term extra dimensional, interdimensional or transdimensional uh, because it, it makes certain assumptions about what we're dealing with here. I'm interested in okay. you know, are we dealing with some intelligent other, right? Some other mm -hmm. intelligence, non-human, discarnate, um, not in and, and the normal form that we would expect an intelligence to man manifest. Is that the same as a spirit? Is it the same as a God? Is it the same as some kind of alien? Um, these are open questions. And I, I simply don't like to attach those labels because once you do that, of course, you, you, you kind of railroad yourself into particular conclusions about what we're dealing with. So I, I see it as a, you know, I, I take seriously the idea, you know, based upon my work, um, I, I think it is very difficult to explain these experiences. Um, it's very easy to kind of sit back, even if you're a neuroscientist. And believe me, I've confronted enough of them about this issue. Uh, it's easy to sit back and say, oh, they're just hallucinating. Uh, but very few of them actually take the time to actually examine the phenomenology and actually examine what's happening during, happening during dreaming, uh, for example. Um, mm -hmm and actually say, does it actually make sense? Can we explain it within the kind of the paradigm of modern neuroscience? And it's my contention that it's, it's very difficult that the experience appears to transcend our ability to explain it, uh, which leaves open ability that in fact, there could be some other intelligence that we're dealing with. Where is it? What is it from? What is the relationship between us and it? These are all, you know, fascinating but not in a position to answer. No, I, I can appreciate that. I, I I don't know that I was wondering if you were going to answer that exactly, because I wouldn't want you, especially because of the scientific research that you do 
you know, you don't never want to go to a definitive answer. Uh, I'm going to ask you a tough question. And Chris, I'm going to turn the mic over to you to ask some questions. Um, okay. Military. Have you ever been approached by any militaries, if you're allowed to talk about that? Or are you aware of military that's used this in order to explore? Um, so, well, first of all, no, I've never been approached by the military. And if I had done, I wouldn't be able to tell you, would I? So. No, <laughs> I still have to ask the question. Way. But, um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, certainly we know that, uh, I mean, this is all declassified now, you know, with Alex Jones, 110% documented, you know, um, um, in, you know, uh, files from the Central Intelligence Agency, for example. Um, you know, once you start talking about that, people think you're going off on one or something. But actually, it's all perfectly well documented that in the 19 beginning, really, um, during the latter stages of the Second World War, at the, uh, at the latest, um, the certainly the, the US intelligence services, you know, they're all interconnected, of course, uh, were interested in agents um, for controlling you know truth drugs truth serums whatever you want to call it but 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 molecules that you could use to control somebody's mind and control their will and that kind of thing uh, and certainly dmt did appear in those files i mean these are published papers as well i mean they were working often with um scientists that were part of um academic institutions um academic institutions that often just happened to be next door to a prison um, because they used to recruit uh, prisoners. Um, so this is kind of cool stuff, actually. So in the 1950s, yeah, um, they would, there's a, so you know Lexington, right, of course? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the name of the institute, but there was a, there was a major um, medical research institute that was right next to the the prison there and the prisoners would be and they wanted to test these drugs so lsd for example the cia were uh, basically had um taken control of all of the lsd at the time was coming from sandoz which is where uh, albert, albert hoffman was originally working right when he invented or discovered or invented lsd so so the cia were basically controlling they had the full supply of that they were at the 100 grams a week or something i mean millions and millions of doses of it they completely controlled the supply uh and they needed people to test these drugs on of course um not just lsd but also dmt uh, and magic mushrooms and you know various very strange drugs that you wouldn't want to take uh, and they would recruit these prisoners um, they would be rewarded so they, they didn't kind of force them as such um, but they would say these are all drug addicts, by the way, former drug addicts. Right. That's they're why they're in prison, because of because of normally heroin addiction. Or they've been caught uh, with heroin. Um, and so they would be rewarded for taking part in these studies with a limited supply. They would get basically like coupons or credit for drugs to exchange those credits, either for reduced time or for a limited supply of first rate you know top-notch president's personal stash level <laughs> uh heroin and of course they always chose the heroin <laughs> uh, so it's kind of a cool story but they weren't told about what drug they were going to take or what its effects would be they would they would wake up be woken up early in the morning they would march you know hungry without being fed uh and lay on a hospital bed and then the doctors would give them whatever drug they were testing that day and then just observe them um so 
so certainly to get back to your original question, intelligence agencies have definitely been interested in 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 psychedelics and in, even in DMT since um, you know for for many decades, for more than you know pushing a century now. So so that then brings us to the question as well: What did they find? Have they done more detailed research, further research with DMT? Right. Um, have they, as Alex Jones maintains, um, been uh, maintaining a relationship with the, you know, the clockwork elves, as he calls them, uh, within the DMT space? Um, I don't know is the answer to that question. I'd love to know. Um, it wouldn't surprise me that much. Um, but, yeah, it's an open question. Well, I'm curious to know, so if anybody has any feedback on that, feel free to leave it to me on my X account at real Greg Bolden or at alien insect, Dr. Andrew's account. Just want to give everybody a quick reminder before I open this up to Chris Michaels to ask some questions. You can also go over the patreon.com backslash America emboldened in order to help support the show and become a subscriber right there. Premium content always available, as well as know exactly what's going on and have access to both me and Chris Michaels' thoughts anytime that you want. Just ask questions. We can get them back in touch with you. Uh, Chris, I'm going to get in later about uh, questions from the audience, uh, questions I have too about PTSD and what can, DMT can do. But I want to turn over to Chris because Chris is my esoteric co-host that kind of can okay. get into a lot of, no, you are, you get into some great things and have insight that I don't. And that was a great historical lesson for me, doctor. I appreciate that. I'm going to let Chris get into some of this other stuff. Oh, geez. Why? Thank you, Greg. Um, well being, or in a past life, having been a psycho, not myself, I can maintain that you are telling the truth about the ge geometry that you suddenly see. Um, and also I remember that even though I was not um, taking anything, uh, and mostly what I took was mushrooms. Um, I still had the effects of it afterwards, after I came down. I would notice extremely well-planned out geometric forms all throughout nature. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful experience because you don't realize what you're looking at until you've got this different perspective. Um, have you ever heard of Tim Ferriss? Okay, so I met him a few times, and he told me something very interesting, uh, particularly when it came to people suffering from depression or ADHD or PTSD. And he basically said, to sum up uh, from what I understand, is that when people take these pharmaceutical drugs, they are rewiring their brains, right? And as long as they keep taking these pharmaceutical drugs, the rewiring maintains itself. But as soon as you stop taking these drugs, all of a sudden it becomes frayed and you only essentially maintain about 20% of your work. But if you work with psychedelics, whether that's mushrooms or acid or DMT, it's a permanent effect or a more permanent effect where you maintain 80% of your work. So have you seen anything along those lines? Have you researched anything like that about how these kinds of particles could in fact help people with PTSD or depression or anything along those lines? Well, I mean, I, I can't corroborate the 80-20 thing. I mean, Oh, no, of course yeah. not. I mean, yeah. um, but certain... I'm not asking you to, <laughs> to do exact percentages. No. Okay. Um, I mean, certainly the brain is a very plastic organ, right? In that the 
your brain is basically an extremely complex network of these information generating cells, neurons, and they're connected by these chemical connections called synapses. And these synapses are changing all the time. Every time you learn something new, every time you open your eyes and look at the world, these connections are, are, are changing. Um, some connections or some patterns uh, are much more kind of fixed and ingrained. So things you know very well. You know, when you open your eyes, it's not like you're looking at the world anew every time. You're greeted with this world of familiar objects which you recognize. Everything is perfectly normal most of the time, right? Because uh, your brain doesn't have to kind of build its model of the world, which is what it's doing, by the way, all the time. The world you experience is this model constructed by your brain. Uh, but your brain has learned and developed over time. Um, to construct very stable, to make sense of these noisy, messy, ever-changing patterns of sensory information uh, coming through the sense organs and, and organize them into these very familiar objects. And that's what you're saying. Basically, you've got Schrodinger's world, essentially. Right. Okay. I don't know what that is, but okay. Well, you know, like Schrodinger's cat. Uh, is okay. It real? Is it right, not, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um. So, so your brain is always changing. Um, that's that's a given. And with something like, let's say, depression or PTSD, you know what's happened there. Um, as I said, some patterns, some patterns of connectivity, some patterns of neural activity uh, can become kind of ingrained over time. And this is important. You know, it allows you to and for men for things you've learned not to disappear if you learn um, to juggle for example or learn to ride a bike you don't want to forget it next day um, so but that, that always has to be a balance between um, kind of stability and novelty um, uh, and flexibility if you like uh, and the brain always has to strike that balance and with with something like depression for example if you imagine uh, a depressive state. I mean, unfortunately, luckily, I've never been kind of clinically depressed. Um, yeah. But if you can, if if you are clinically depressed and you're constantly reinforcing certain ideas about yourself and about the world, um, you know, my life is awful. I'm such a failure. Everything I do turns to shit. Um, you know, everything is going to get worse. And if you if you reinforce these, it becomes. You can imagine it becoming kind of ingrained. Sure. How do you yeah. shake that up? How do you get rid of that? You can't just say, come on, don't worry about it. You're great. That's not going to work because these patterns are established. Um, so that's what we think is happening or the kind of the broad consensus of what's happening with something like depression. Uh, so the question is, how do you deal with that? Uh, and what psychedelics do very efficiently is they increase that flexibility temporarily uh, in the brain. It's like heating up a piece of glass. If you've got a piece of glass and it's 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 cold, it's very rigid. You heat it up, you can start to mould it, and and it will change any any shape you like. And this is how a glass blower can produce beautiful objects, right? By heating the glass, and then creating the desired object. So if you uh, then it cools down again, of course, and it fixes back in place. Um, so you can think of the psychedelics as kind of like that, as as not literally heating up the brain, but um, but kind of activating these certain populations of neurons that that makes the whole brain and the activity in the brain much more fluid and dynamic and allows your brain to explore different states, different patterns that it doesn't normally explore. So if you're in a very psychedelic, you know, if you're in the, 
at the peak of a psychedelic experience, you can start to break down these old connections. Old connections and ingrained connections become weaker, allows you to form new ones. So you can imagine working through uh, with a therapist, for example, um, um, these very negative patterns and thought processes that you've been maintaining for all these years and start to dismantle them and start to build more positive uh, patterns Um, and then the idea is that when you come down from the trip you've you've not only dismantled those old patterns but placed them uh, with with something more positive so so it's just like heating up a piece of glass and then letting it cool Mm -hmm. again that's the broad idea Um, now with other drugs um, that alter for example selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, for example, um, you are manipulating the brain in a slightly different way. You're, you're manipulating the levels of certain neurotransmitters, in particular serotonin. And, and over time, this, this can cause structural uh, changes in the patterns of connectivity, but it's a much slower process. Um, and you can get kind of rebound effects once you come off the drugs. Um, yeah. So that's kind of an kind of an explanation, I think, for what, what Tim Ferris might have been saying that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes yeah. sense. Uh, I can actually validate that. Uh, the first time I took acid, I didn't know what I was in for. So I did two tabs, um, and then I went to a rave for the next eight hours. Big mistake. <laughs> but I will say this. Coming down from that, um, it was like somebody took my emotions and scooped them out with a cheese grater and then tried to pour them back in. Um, I went through a recent breakup at the time, so I was feeling a little down, which is why I did what I did, but I'll say this for the next two weeks, I felt amazing. I felt absolutely emotionally secure. Um, and another oddity that went along with it was the ability to manifest. So I would just be able to think of something, you know, when you think of somebody and then all of a sudden you get a text from them or a phone call or something like that. That went on for about two solid weeks. It was it was miraculous. Um, so it was extremely interesting to go through something like that. And uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't pass up on that again. Um, and I'm sure you've heard of Cary Grant, right? The black and white movie actor. Yes. I was wondering if it was so the same you know, Cary Grant. That was that was a bit left field. Yes, I've heard of Cary Grant. Yes. yes. Well, <laughs> well you, you know about him, right? So he really struck uh, struggled with, uh, you know, the rumors are that he was gay and he had a lot of relationships with men, particularly uh, a very, very masculine cowboy guy, Randolph Scott. You know, they would share movie trailers together. So everyone knew what was going on. So he really struggled with that. He was one of the only actors that I know of that actually went through LSD therapy with an actual therapist for a very long time. And he tells about his experiences and it eventually led him to a wife and have a kid. So it was it was kind of shocking to hear that somebody like Cary Grant would do something like that. Yeah, I mean, but sorry. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say. I mean, I think it's it's kind of surprising. Um, a lot of people, a lot of famous people, certainly historical, um, that you may, maybe you wouldn't have imagined have been using LSD, and it was it was much more acceptable, you know, until yeah. before the kind of the war on drugs and all that started. Uh, psychedelics were seen as this. You know, huge promise, you know, this massive potential in, in the treatment of, you know, not just psychological disorders, but things like, you know, alcohol addiction and, uh, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and other kind of conditions. And, and unfortunately, we lost several decades of progress with the kind of the demonization of psychedelics. So but we're we're catching up now. 
Yeah, right. I, it's funny, though, you should say that, because when I've taken uh, them, I never had the impetus to, to touch alcohol. It, it was like, why would I ever want to touch that? I don't even think about it. It's, it's not even there. It's almost like you ruin it if you touch something like, an al like a downer, like alcohol or something like that. Um, I wanted to ask you about, have you noticed an increase in intelligence after the trips? And the reason why I ask that is because I've noticed that even if I were to do a microdose, I would be able to think of solutions to problems a lot more readily and a lot quicker than I would normally. So it was almost like a like a like a little bit of a medicine, like a little match that got lit. Yeah. So whether it's an increase in intelligence, what we certainly know is that the, there's an increase in um, creativity and a, an increase. Yeah. I mean, part of the problem with solving problems, particularly, is thinking outside of again. We're talking going back to the idea of ingrained patterns. When you face a problem, if you're whether you're an architect or uh, a mathematician or something, you're trying to you know deal with some very complex proof and you're you you have a certain number of ways angles that you attack it and it's not working you can't think out of that you can't break out of those in kind of ingrained patterns and they loosen that up they allow you or your brain much more naturally to kind of reach out of these uh, kind of ingrained patterns and to explore other possibilities so what so so it doesn't surprise me that you would see um uh, a perceived increase in intelligence i don't think you're actually yeah, becoming sure. more intelligent as such as measured by an iq yeah. test for example although, although you might see an improvement there um, but right can, yeah. but certainly <coughs> excuse me certainly you would see an increase in creativity and, and novel ways of thinking the brain is always like, going back to this idea of the balance between novel uh, and and habitual um you have your brain has to organize its thoughts otherwise you know it's just chaos and you would never be able to maintain a train of thought and a train yeah, logical true. rational thinking but at the same time if that's pushed too far you, it becomes ingrained and you're never able to have some a novel thought and what psychedelics do even in very low doses is just nudge the dial towards novelty mm. it's not so crazy i mean if you take too much lsd and try to solve a problem you'll get nowhere uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a, you got a bigger you know problem I mean? than that but you can imagine <laughs> now you get you've it created right. a problem yeah if you get the dosage right you're just nudging the dial and things just loosen yeah. up a little bit and that allows you to explore the problem from different angles and then maybe you come across with a, a, a novel solution this is all, also probably why um you know sleeping on a problem often works because in yeah. in the in the dreaming in the dream state there's nothing magical going on here um you're not receiving it from the gods or something but in the, in the dream state your brain again is disconnected from sensory information that normally it, your brain is always held accountable to what's going on in the environment when you switch that off mm. your brain um kind of becomes slightly more fluid it relaxes in a sense uh, it allows it it, it removes its, it removes restrictions it removes those restrictions moves those constraints that come from having to deal with the the in sensory information from the environment when it has to be alert and clear and problem solving um so so in the dream state you can explore these things so people will often dream uh you know go to sleep with a problem in their on, on their mind and wake up and it's there, they got the solution and they don't know how it happened, yeah. but the brain was always kind of working on it uh, without having this distractions of sensory information. I mean, the concept sounds almost occultish 
Because if you read any of that kind of material, I mean, they talk about the ability to manifest or, you know, just solve a problem or get to where you want to go in your life through the ideas of what you're mentioning right now, which is remove the restraints, find ways to remove the restraints from your thinking, because then you can come up with other solutions. Yes, exactly. I think it, it's often it's not about um, increasing intelligence or in, in, increasing knowledge or skill. Poor word choice on my part. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> you, that's fine. I mean, it, it, Chris just wanted to be told that he got smarter <laughs> due, due to his uh, yeah. stupidity in his 20s. Oh, man. <laughs> and 30s. <Yeah. laughs> it, Dr. Andrew, I want to ask a question here out of uh, what I believe is prudence to the listening audience. Uh, I have, as a high school teacher, I have an audience that runs from 14 years of age all the way up to 80 years of age or older. Um, so I, I just want to be mindful that there may be younger kids that are listening to this going, look, Ma. They're telling me this is okay. I can, <laughs> we, we need to go get some magic mushrooms, some psilocybin. Um, we talked about safety of DMT earlier, but can we also talk about like safe usage and uh, how you feel about that from your side? Yeah. So when I say safe, I mean, safe is a broad word. Um, mm -hmm. So, so they can be, dangerous in some aspects they can be harmful i mean these are these are extremely unusual states of consciousness and if you're not prepared they can be terrifying if you're not prepared for it if you think you're going to you know take a hit of lsd and it will be like being drunk for a few hours um, if you have no idea what to expect mm -hmm. you're going to be in for a big surprise <laughs> uh, same with magic mushrooms um so certainly and the and, and and they go on for a long time as well particularly with lsd you're talking seven eight up to 12 hours and some people go on even longer it lasts for a very long time so so it needs the benefit of, of dmt is that it only lasts for about five minutes and then you're back um so you don't really have a time to ruminate on what's happening to you it's like being on a roller coaster you know before you realize what's happening you're already on the way back um so so yeah it's i would i would suggest generally without wanting to sound like the um like a parent figure or something um teenagers probably shouldn't be messing with these drugs you know wait until your no. your your cortex is fully developed before you start manipulating it uh with delix certainly you know so if you're a 16 or 17 year old and think it sounds like fun you know i'm not saying that i was a perfect teenager and that i necessarily um can you know <laughs> you know what I mean, right? Um, of course. Yes. <laughs> I, I, We've I just all been there. Kind of, I, I just, but yeah, but if I was if I was to say, you know, you should wait until you're yeah. really, ideally, you should be, you shouldn't be thinking about doing it until you've got a fully developed frontal lobes, which is you're talking of five even uh, before you should start thinking about doing these. Most people won't wait until then, but certainly if you're a teenager, I would just i don't think uh, just based upon my experiences i don't think i would have done it in my teenage years i i think it would have been a wasted experience oh for sure um, yeah that minimally when minimally it would have been wasted yeah well yeah i mean when i've done it it was always because i had an intention of what i wanted to do when i was on them um so i actually got something out of that yeah um you mentioned something that it only lasts about five to ten minutes yeah have they experimented with ways to extend that period? And also, what I, I do want to get into the alternate, I, I guess, realm, if we will, 
because I do have an experience that's similar to that or from what you described. But is there a way to extend that length of time? And has there been any side effects to it or, or what the experiences were like? Well, funny you should say that because, yes, I mean, well, traditionally, of course, the way that it's done in the in Amazonia would have been to um, combine it with a, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which is a molecule that prevents DMT from being broken down um, as quickly. Uh, it blocks the enzyme that normally metabolizes DMT very rapidly. So that extends it. Uh, but it's a it's a, a long, drawn out experience. It increases and then it comes down again, just like any other drug. So in, in 2016 now, uh, I wrote a paper with Rick Strassman. Uh, we proposed this technology, what we called... Um, uh, extended state DMT or DMTX, as it's now become known as, which is a, a repurposing of technology from anesthesiology called target controlled intravenous infusion, um, in which you deliver a programmed dose um, continuously into someone's bloodstream based upon using a, a mathematical model of the way that the drug is metabolized and distributed through the body and brain. Um, the idea being that you can maintain a stable level yeah. of DMT in the brain over time. So then you can bring someone into the DMT space, the DMT world, if you like, uh, and you can hold them there for as long as you like. Um, so we, we proposed that in 2016. Just last year, uh, a team in an Imperial College London completed the first human um, extended state DMT trials. They had I think a dozen volunteers who were all induced into the state for 30 minutes uh, and were able to establish. Uh, there we go. That's mine and Rick's original paper. That's what started it all. Um, all those years ago. Well, just a few years ago, really. Seems like a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but now, so currently I'm working with a, a nonprofit uh, based in the United States called New Nautics. You can go to newnautics.org and you can even sign up to be a volunteer for DMTX. And they now have a, they're now constructing an institute uh, in, in an undisclosed location, but it's a Caribbean island, uh, not far, you know, a couple of hours from Miami, probably something like that. Um, it's not Epstein Island. <laughs> I heard it was you got it. Yeah, it's Epstein <laughs> No, it's not. <laughs> um, um, but we, you know, that we have full permission um, for from a government to perform this work. Uh, something that we can't get yet in the United States yeah. or indeed anywhere else. Certainly not as a private institute uh, to do this. Um, so we'll be working. Um, you know, and this is kind of full steam ahead at the moment the institute is being constructed and so hopefully in the next few months or year or so yeah. uh, people will who are not part of a research project will be able to uh, actually experience these extended dmt excursions um for as long as they want really um, yeah you know so so what are the differences between a normal i guess dose of dmt and these extended um trips yeah so well as i say the normal normally what's happening is it, it's so fast you're 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 kind right. of fired into this space particularly if you're not that experienced and even if you are to be honest it's it, it it's kind of very disorientating 
Um, right. It's like by the time you realize it, it's already over. Yeah, exactly. So there's lift the chance to kind of get your bearings and to orient yourself and get your kind of your intellective tools in order, uh, in order to navigate and explore the space and establish communication with any beings within the space. That's very, very difficult to do. Um, but with this technology, over time, what we find is that the, the state begins to stabilize. Your brain effectively gets used to constructing this dramatically altered reality model um, and you are able to conduct much more extended interactions with the beings you can you can com communicate with them you can ask them questions in theory you could you could um, um, you could perform experiments in the space you could think about how right. you map the structure of the space uh, analyze the geometry of the space you know ask any sort of question now um, it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like you know the difference between um, open water diving um, or free diving where you kind of dive in you might look around but then you've got to go straight back up again before your oxygen runs out uh, and deep sea diving where you're attached to an air supply at the surface where you can yeah. spend a lot more time um that's kind of how i see it and so um so it, it opens up the dmt space uh, like never before for um exploration and scientific study sure. and, and, and establishing communication with the, the beings within the space you know learning their language and so so what kind of beings are people running into um, yeah. Because I have a sort of a, I, I guess, would be my closest experience with something like this. I remember I did um, mushrooms one time. And I remember in this bizarre type of environment, it was, it was full of light. And it had red hues all over the place. But it was absolutely enormous. So if you can imagine sort of like antediluvian structures. You know, just huge, huge, huge structures everywhere, but they weren't physical structures. And I met these three enormous white beings, and I communicated with them with a little for a little bit. And what I remember is they put something like a almost like a like an Apollo type headband on me, sort of like with with wings or or something like that going back. And then I totally lost the experience. Um, but, but it was crazy cause I can't forget it, but I can't describe it. Like you said, you know, people that go into these States, it's, unless you go there, unless you've experienced it, you, you can't even fathom. Yeah. So that's the kind of the, the, the perennial problem with DMT is it's very difficult to bring back. People will come back and be kind of ranting and raving about, you know, what, yeah, right. you know, what was that, you know, that, that was the most incredible thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. Nothing beyond my imagination, you know, shaken to their very bones. Uh, and then you say, what did you see? And then, I can't remember. Uh, I can't even yeah, tell you. Okay. <laughs> Wish I knew. Then it kind of it just melts away and it's gone. Uh, and then yeah. you can't even bring to mind what it was, apart from some vague concepts that you know, there was some kind of being you know, that might be as far as it right. goes. At the time, it was this incredibly yeah. complex and detailed and um, dynamic and intelligent creature that you were interacting with. And it was very, very real and right there. Uh, but then you kind of the details fade and you, all you yeah. can say is, I met something that was alive and very intelligent, um, which makes it very, very difficult to study, of course, is because some people are actually quite good at bringing back um yeah. information 
Um, so, so what kind of beings do people run across? Because it seems as though that you've you've spoken to many people that see the same kinds of beings. Yes, I mean there are a number of kind of DMT archetypal beings. I mean the elves are probably the most famous residents of these worlds. So these are normally very small. They vary in form, unified by their character, and that they are very. Uh, kind of diminutive, lively, mischievous, friendly, normally, but not necessarily. Um, um, extremely excited to see you kind of beings. They've been, they've been described um, variously as, as elves or imps or little people um, or, or, or whatever. And, and they've been described, again, people always say it's Terence McKenna that invented the DMT elves, the machine elves, but we know that that's simply not true. And that you go back to Timothy Leary uh, in the 1960s, he was describing elf like beings. You go back to Stephen Zara's mm-hmm. the first ever study of DMT. Uh, one of the first people ever to take DMT described small beings that were moving about very quickly, which sounds just like the kind of beings we, we, we meet in the DMT space in the modern era uh, and that appeared many times in Rick Strassman's studies. But then if you go back to the DMT plant preparation using shamans from Amazonia, mm. um, they also describe these little people. Um, there's a very famous case of the ethnobotanist Richard Schultz. He was um, exploring, I think he was in Colombia, and he was... Um, just um, kind of doing what botanists do, looking at plants, I guess, collecting. Um, and he was had this little Witoto shaman boy or Witoto son of a shaman. Uh, mm. And uh, he said to Richard Schultz, uh, as Richard Schultz was looking at this tree and, you know, collecting samples from this tree, he said, oh, these are, um, this is the tree my father uses when he wants to see the little people. Um, so... Mm. Then, like a decade later or something, he was with a completely different little kid looking at a completely different tree. And the kid said to him, oh, this is the tree father uses when he wants to speak to the little people. Um, so he was wow. like, well, deja vu. Uh, and these were completely different tribe, indigenous groups, completely different parts of Amazonia, but the same phenomenon. And obviously that's not you know, just the kind of a uh, an idiosyncratic vision of one particular shaman, but clearly it, it's part of their their cosmology. It's a part of their entire structure sure. of their reality. So the idea that Terence McKenna invented the little people um, archetype is yeah. nonsense. It's clearly they are a, a feature of the the DMT experience that's been going back for thousands of years. And mythology too, riddled with this stuff. Right. right. And that, that's actually what I wanted to ask. If so, if this has readily been found in plants, we go back thousands of years. Oh, before uh, we before you go down that road, did you see oh, yeah. what I sent you, Greg? Uh, no, I did not. Over on X, I just okay. want to bring it up for two seconds. You can yeah. go whatever road you want to go down after that. Okay, sounds good. So, Andrew, I took this picture that I sent Greg, and he'll bring it up on the screen. Hopefully, you'll be able to see it. I took this picture around two thousand two thousand one. I had a digital SLR camera. Uh, not your phone, not your typical phone. It was at a park uh, in New York State where I was living. And I just took this picture because I thought it was a nice picture. I had to stand in a little stream to get the shot and decided to frame it nicely with two trees and all of that. Um, so I decided to use this picture as my wallpaper um, as, on my computer. And I did this at about 1 a.m. or so. And then all of a sudden, 
I noticed something in it, and I immediately flipped on all the lights, and I couldn't sleep after that. So do you kind of see what I'm seeing in there? <laughs> I do, yeah. I mean, I, looks yeah. like a little dude. It does look like, a little like he's dude. got a wishbone. He's got a wishbone. He's, <laughs> he's holding on to something. It almost looks metallic. Um, I did not know that was in the shot. Um, I went back there a year later to try and recreate that shot. Obviously, I did not get something like this. But I did notice similar types of faces in the bark up and down this, this grouping of trees. So I just thought that was very, very interesting that you're talking about, oh, we go to the trees to see the little people. And apparently I validated you that. Maybe you did, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so a couple questions I have here. Um, Michaels, I'm going to ask you a quick question. Have you ever done DMT, Michaels? I'm the brute no. of the group. I haven't touched anything. Mm -hmm. All right. So, Michaels, you've never done DMT, but you were talking about psilocybin. I think Dr. Andrew has made it very clear, though, this is two completely different experiences. When people take psilocybin, have they experienced the same type of world, Dr. Andrew, or is that just unique to DMT? So, with so so psilocybin is actually structurally very closely related. The molecule is very closely related to DMT. So DMT is N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Psilocybin uh, is uh, 4-phosphoroxy N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Um, when it gets into the brain, it becomes 4-hydroxy N-N-dimethyltryptamine. Um, so they're very closely related. They work in basically the same way in the brain. And, and in high doses, people describe very high doses, so not, not a normal mushroom trip. In very high doses, people describe seeing the same kind of geometry, the same kind of worlds, and, and, and indeed, some people describe it as very similar to a DMT trip. So I think DMT is unique in certain aspects in the, the efficiency with which, with, uh, with which it achieves this effect, um, um, uh, you know, the brevity um, of, of the experience and the intensity, the speed of it. Okay. Uh, but you can, um, if you take enough mushrooms, you can also approach at least uh, these kind of DMT spaces. So I don't think it's necessarily 100% unique to DMT, but DMT is certainly the the kind of the most efficient way of achieving that kind of state. Okay. Um, I have a question from a audience member here watching. Uh, Joe wants to know, does the gentleman believe DMT could relieve a fear of death? Uh, thanks, especially in veterans with PTSD. This is coming from a veteran. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's been well documented uh, in, and it, it's also why not just DMT, but normally psilocybin. I mean, DMT is a bit out there, uh, but but people who are approaching death, so people with terminal cancer, for example, uh, are sometimes given psilocybin, and often it will relieve their fear of death. They 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 get a direct encounter with the non physical. Um, you know, once they come back, they have no doubt in their mind that there's more to them than this, to coin a phrase, mortal coil. Um, and and so, yes, absolutely. And, you know, I've spoken to many people uh, who have used DMT extensively and that they're, you know, I can't comment on whether they're correct, whether what they believe is true, of course. But as far as they're concerned, there's no doubt about it, that there's more to life there's more to intelligence there's more to existence and reality than than what we see uh, because they're confronted with it uh, so they, they don't have to kind of read books or be t you know 
informed by a man standing on a pulpit about what they're going to see in the afterlife or you know what is and isn't going to happen uh, and kind of take it on faith uh, it's like okay you want to see it take this you know i'll see you in 10 minutes um then you'll understand so it, it's it's unique in that sense um i think it's much much more efficient it's a much more efficient conversion tool um if you want to convert someone to the idea that there is more to reality than the, than what they they see and that, that death perhaps isn't as significant in the grand scheme of things uh, as we um normally assume it to be so the answer to the question is absolutely yes Okay. Um, and I made a note here earlier when you were talking with uh, Michaels. Uh, you talked about SSRIs. You mentioned Prozac. I'm guessing, you know, any selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor is going to be along the same lines. People have these uh, withdrawals trying to come off them, that rebound effect. Um, I feel like at this point in time, uh, somebody who has been uh, an educator for over 20 years, I've noticed that SSRIs are more commonly used for prolonged periods of time for more people. And you were talking about how it's a slower process, but we can see that the plasticity of the brain is starting to be altered. I'm curious, could DMT be a way to heal whatever type of rewiring happens while on SSRIs? And could that also be helpful maybe for the reasons why people are taking them? Possibly. And, um, you know, I don't know what research has been done on that, if any, in that particular case, uh, that particular mm -hmm. scenario. Uh, but what what SSRIs and other psychiatric drugs are, are doing is, is more than just kind of altering the wiring or, or, or the connectivity or the, the plasticity of the brain. Is they're actually changing the the expression, they're changing the numbers of receptors. So a neuron is is this very complex machine in a way, and it's covered with all these different receptors for all these different neurotransmitters. And when you take an SSRI, normally it takes two, three weeks before you start to see an effect. So it's not the prime reaction of the SSRI that is causing the, the if you find any uh, it's not that initial rise in serotonin which happens after just a few hours but it's actually changes secondary to that downstream of that you increase the levels of serotonin then the brain starts to adjust and alter the the, the expression of certain receptors so the ways the way that neurons actually function also is changing um, and this is very difficult to predict how that's going to affect right. an individual person so in a sense the fact that ssris work to some extent in certain people and, and there's no doubt about it many people do find benefit whatever yep. you think about them um, it's 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 not it's not because you're just raising someone's serotonin but you're actually changing their neurochemistry in quite deep ways over time uh, and so when you withdraw the ssri serotonin levels drop the whole system is like is, is is thrown out of whack um right. uh, and it takes time for the brain to kind of readjust itself and this is why you get these withdrawal effects because the brain is mm. is having to kind of reset and you know remove or add and change the 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 receptor profile of, of all these neurons and that takes time uh that takes several weeks probably to do that if not longer um yeah. so could psychedelics be useful here possibly but i just don't think any yeah, I, I, I remember doing a show about a year ago. Um, I, I forget 
which journal it was in and I could type it, but it would take me a while to find it, I'm sure. Uh, but I'm, you might be familiar with this. I, I remember uh, reading that they had studied SSRIs and what they concluded last year was they really had no idea how they work. They had a general concept of what was going on. They knew what the uh, biomedical uh, pharmacology was doing, but they didn't really know why it was working for some people, wasn't working for others. Um, and I found that to be kind of shocking. That something that's been used now for decades, that science really doesn't know why it's helpful exactly. They just kind of know what's, we're throwing stuff at people and they're getting them hooked on for years. I guess I'm just looking at if there's things that are natural that people can go, you know, we tell people now you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, but that doesn't seem to be actually the truth. That's a chemical imbalance. I think that that's a falsity that we've sold society. What would you call it? Well, um, the, the chemical imbalance idea is, has been, old hat and has been discredited for for decades now you know nobody in the neuroscientific or psychiatric community uh, that's worth their salt was was really talking about a chemical imbalance that's it's kind of that's more of a kind of a popular meme if you like um that it was a set um, that you know a, a you know your serotonin levels are too low uh, or you have an imbalance of certain chemicals in in science we haven't thought of like that for for, for a very long time um so um you know, it, this paper that came out that you're talking about, and I, I remember seeing it um, and people saying, oh, it, it, it completely destroys psychiatry. It completely destroys the SSRI or the serotonin model of depression or whatever. It, it doesn't because nobody was thinking that that, that uh, depression was caused by an imbalance of certain chemicals or you know, a depletion of serotonin, etc. We, we, we un we've understood for decades now, you know, when I was at university back in in the 90s, the very late 90s or early 2000s, um, we weren't taught that it was an imbalance. We were taught that these are you know, changes in receptor expression. Um, but as I was just saying before, you know, it's, it's quite right. These, these changes that, that go on in the brain that generate the therapeutic effect um are going to vary depending on the individual it's not everyone's going to get increased serotonin when you take an ssri um or the vast majority of people are uh, but that's not the therapeutic effect and we've known that for a long time uh, the therapeutic effect comes much later and that will depend on your own particular uh, neurological neurochemical profile and it will vary for everybody they're broadly similar broadly comparable you know we all have brains that are basically very similar um, but it's going to vary and so predicting what's going to happen downstream when you simply raise the level of, of serotonin or other neurotransmitters and what's going to be the downstream effect and, and how is that going to affect how the person feels um, is very difficult um, so you know the paper is not wasn't surprising to me and to I would think anyone really that was that's in in the neurosciences or in, in, in psychiatrics. Hmm. Uh, I just wanted to tell people too, the, the website that you mentioned earlier, Neuronautics is N-O-O-N-A-U-T-I-C-S.org. And on right on that page, you can apply for DMTX, the study that's going on right now. I put that up on the video so people saw it. But for people listening to the audio, uh, when you said it uh, immediately, I did not spell it right <laughs> properly in my mind. So I okay. wanted to spell it for everybody so they could find it. Um, 
you also have uh, a couple of fascinating books. So uh, the book Alien Information Theory, which is psychedelic drug technologies and the cosmic game. I would point people uh, there uh, if you're wanting to know a little bit more about some of what we were talking about, as well as uh, just last, uh, I guess it was two years ago. I thought it was last year, but I think it was about two years ago. Uh, you came out with Reality Switch Technologies, Psychedelics as Tools for Discovery and Exploration of New Worlds, which has been largely kind of the conversation we've crafted uh, this evening for everybody uh, here on the show. Um, what's next? What, where, where do you plan on going with the research and what's unlocking uh, collaboration with others? Uh, what, what, do you, what are you working on? Well, um, right at this moment, I'm writing my third book, which is so about uh, um, five eighths of the way through it. So just over halfway, uh, which will be focused purely on DMT. Uh, it will be a, um, I think, the, f the first book purely focused on DMT to be published by one of the big five publishing houses, uh, Macmillan, St. Martin's Press in New York. Uh, so that should be out beginning of next year or maybe spring 2025. Um, and that will deal with basically everything I've learned about DMT over the last couple of decades, the history of DMT in both traditional as well as modern settings, uh, how it works in the brain, you know, why it's such a, a great mystery, why it's so difficult to explain, what it all might mean so so yeah so that's basically my day-to-day -day at the moment is getting up at 5 30 and writing um until i fall down uh, later in the day um but at the same time um i'm working as i said with new nautics as well them uh, overseeing the development of this whole institute which will be focused on dmtx um uh, but also we'll have therapeutic arms and research arms. Uh, so we've got a whole team now, a global uh, group of people on a, our advisory board who are, you know, uh, who all, all have kind of massive input in, in thinking about what we do with this technology now that we have it and now we've, it's been shown to actually work in humans. Um, you know, it's like a new frontier, uh, a new world has been discovered. Uh, you know, where, uh, you know, where do we go from there basically? So that's, taking up the moment until the latter parts of this year um writing the book will be basically what i'm doing most of the time i cannot wait to hear more about unidentified archaeological phenomena that is fantastic because i am a bit of a, a, a amateur anthropologist and archaeologist myself when it comes to all of that i've done uh past life regressions um and all that and i've learned some pretty interesting things uh but that looks fantastic i mean i may even sign up right now greg what do you think i was gonna ask i was gonna ask you michaels <laughs> are you gonna sign up on on the website uh, so and that was actually a question i, I wanted to, to before we wrap up with dr andrew i wanted to ask him who are the candidates who are you looking for on this website if people are listening to the show and they're intrigued and they go to your website what type of individual do you want well i mean at the, at the moment um we're looking for anyone who is i mean there will be genius so just because you put your name down your email address unfortunately doesn't mean that you're going to be booked on a flight to the caribbean <laughs> next week uh, sorry chris <laughs> College um, students, you, know, you probably won't. <laughs> you probably won't hear anything for a long time. But there will be obviously. I mean, this is really to express an interest. But there will be obviously be specific criteria. I mean, this is 
this is not um like going on a funfair ride this is it's a serious business so right. there will be medical criteria like criteria um uh, that you have to fulfill in order to be a but at, but at this stage until we kind of work out exactly what kind of research questions then you will have specific criteria based upon the type of research questions we might be posing you know if it's if you're thinking about um, treatment for you know therapeutic treatments then obviously it will be people who have certain conditions if it's people who simply want to in, explore and uh, experience dmtx uh, then it would be more open i guess you know there wouldn't be specific right. uh, criteria apart from probably having some experience with dmt some history of psychedelic drug use and um obvious medical safety kind of criteria that you have to fulfill you know you don't have a serious heart condition you don't have epilepsy um these kind of things will probably have to, um will have to be fulfilled as well so at the moment it's very open it will it will depend upon the medics you know i'm not a physician uh, i don't get to dictate who is and isn't allowed and there will be physicians and anesthesiologists um you know doctors and nurses all the important people that will be ensuring the safety of anyone who who does undergo this experience well it looks like i got eliminated uh by the uh, medical background there michael's uh, high blood pressure and stuff <laughs> you'll have to take the trip for me and let me know all what right. it's like i'll keep um, a journal I wanted to share this comment. If I put it up on the screen, I'm not sure. It's like a book uh, uh, lengthwise. So I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, Kelvin uh, has really enjoyed the conversation tonight. Uh, and he put, uh, psychedelics saved me. I used to be so out of touch. I was self-absorbed, angry, prone to violence, mad at the world. I had a lot of unprocessed trauma. Psychedelics gave me the ability to see things from a different perspective and allowed me to begin working on myself and dealing with my trauma. I owe who I am today in part the lessons I learned while having psychedelic experiences. I've had several friends come back from the brink of suicide with just a single dose of psychedelics. Yeah. That's got to feel really good to be in the research that you're in and to hear those type of stories. Yes, many such cases, many such cases, as they say. Uh, it's not unusual. Uh, uh, for people to discover psychedelics at some of the lowest points in their lives uh, when they're even um, thinking of, of, of ending it all and, and being brought back and, and finding that actually it is worth continuing in this, this crazy old world for a bit longer. <laughs> yeah. What's the most memorable experience that you had? Oh, I don't really talk about my experiences, but... Um... Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. I was going to say ethically, I'm not somebody sure somebody else, could. an anonymous person. What's the most uh, memorable experience of somebody else that you can? Oh God, that's a difficult question. I've, I've been, I've been writing this book now for the last six months. So um, I've got dozens. I don't want to spill the beans. Dozens okay, and dozens it. of these kind of experiences. Some of them, interestingly, actually um, Rick Strassman book. Have you read DMT, the spirit molecule? You should read that. I skimmed it. You skimmed it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the trip report's really great. So he published a lot of the trip reports uh, from DMT, the spirit molecule. Um, um, you know, he's from his volunteers. He took detailed notes of their accounts. And, and many of the really interesting ones were published. He let me have access to his bedside notes from the study, the original notes that he took. And, and scouring through the, the hundreds of pages of that, I've managed to find some really juicy reports that have not been published and that are pretty mind-blowing so um 
Yeah. So it's your job to get them published. So My job to get them published. So, <laughs> so I'll leave that as an open one, but yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> Put it on the list. <laughs> well, well, Dr. Gallimer, I, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to spend with us here uh, on the show, educating me. I, I learned a ton tonight um, or morning for you, I assume. Uh, but I, I, I've had a really great time and I hope that the audience has as well. If my audience would like to follow uh, Dr. Gallimore, uh, he's on X. Uh, so you can actually go and type in, I think it's Alien Insect. Is that correct? I want to make sure I have that right. At Alien Insect. Alien Insect. Yes. All one word. Uh, so if you'd like to find out more about his books, uh, find out what he's working on, I highly recommend going over to at Alien Insect. That's on the X format, formerly Twitter. I still call it Twitter. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but certainly, if you have questions and stuff, feel free, uh, funnel them over, ask away. Uh, I got to some of your questions here this evening. Um, and, you know, if you have questions after listening to it on the network or anywhere else, put it in the comment section. I'll be sure to send a message over to Dr. Gallimore as well uh, to, to be able to do that. But thank you, Dr. Andrew. I, I wish you the best on your continued research. Uh, I can't wait to hear Chris Michael's story of being part of the trial. No, I'm kidding. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, just going to throw my hat in the ring. Doesn't mean I'm going to be qualified. I know. Well, I mean, he's, you're like his favorite podcast host now. So, you know, maybe that pulls some weight for you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. All right. But Dr. Andrew, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. You're welcome. Anytime <laughs> there's a new study, something comes out, you let us know. I'm getting you to the top of the list. Uh, that was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, All man. right, bold Americans. I hope that we honored your time. Well, I think that we did. It was a, a phenomenal conversation tonight. Everything that I thought that I knew about psychedelics, I'm going to rethink. I've never done them. I've never been close to them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm very much a prude when it comes to that. But you heard from Michaels talking about his story there. Uh, you heard from Dr. Andrew. Go check out those books. Go check out the website. Learn about this a little bit more. Don't let your preconceived notions fool you. And on Monday, I'll be talking to a person who does shamanic healing with psychedelics. And so we'll continue the conversation in a bookend in order to have that. You've all been listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden, Chris Michaels, and our guest, Dr. Andrew Gallimore. Be bold, America.